Today's text is Malachi 2, 10 to 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he is no longer because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. May the hearers of God's word be blessed. All right, guys, go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Uh, If you guys have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Malachi. That will be um, our text for this morning. Uh, If you don't know where Malachi is, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, Or you can feel free to go to the table of contents. Um, and look at it, uh, see that what page number it's on in, in your Bible. There's no shame in that. Um, but this morning, we're going to continue in our four-week series called uh, entitled Happily Ever After, talking about marriage and God's uh, design for marriage. And last week, uh, we talked about the purpose of marriage and uh, what is the purpose of marriage. And not only did we talk about the purpose of marriage, but we talked about some of uh, the insecurities and fantasies uh, that we have allowed uh, to define uh, the purpose of marriage for us. Uh, and so we compared and contrast these two ideas, as we'll do every week in this series. And last week, we, con- we uh, compared uh, the idea of marriage being for my satisfaction, or is marriage for God's glory? Uh, and we went through the text together last week from Genesis and some other texts uh, to see that ultimately... Although it is not sinful or wrong for you to want to love and, and bring some sense of satisfaction to your spouse, that ultimately that is not the design or the purpose of marriage, that ultimately the design and the purpose of marriage is for God's glory. And what we sometimes tend to forget, um, and this is kind of an overarching lie that we have to fight against just in any area of life, is the lie that the world tells us that you will find your best by seeking your good, right? Like, There's nobody else looking out for you. You've got to look out for number one. And so you have to do what is necessary to make sure that you get the good things that you want or that you think you deserve. So that's the lie. The truth, the biblical truth, the worldview, the way that God has actually written things on our heart is that our good actually comes as we are seeking God's glory. That as our lives are committed and dedicated to God's glory, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, that everything else will be added unto you. And that's hard for us, right? It's hard to have faith and to trust that as I am living and seeking God and I'm arranging my life and my time and my money and my relationships for His glory, because it's hard to believe that that is actually going to lead to my good because sometimes we don't 
see that. Sometimes what really is good, as God defines it, isn't good as you and I would define it or how we would like for God to define it, right? Um, But we saw last week that marriage, ultimately the purpose of marriage, um, is for the glory, to display the glory of God. And so this week we're going to talk about uh, is marriage, is the commitment to marriage, is it convenience or is it covenant? Convenience or covenant? And the lie that we'll be combating this morning is this, that when marriage is no longer convenient, it can easily be discarded. And the word convenient, just to kind of give you guys a little bit of framework, when we say the word convenient, um, here's a definition of convenient. It simply means uh, easily fitting in with my needs, or let's say easily fitting in with my perceived needs, okay? So what the world tells us, and you can, you know, driving even around Bakersfield, which is somewhat conservative, you can drive around on, on uh, when they used to do uh, ads on buses, uh, you could see, you know, divorces for $69, it's that easy, it's that quick, it's that cheap, right? Um, and there is a lie that we see, we read about, we hear it in music, we watch it on television, we see it lived out in the, li- in the lives of our, uh, of our coworkers and neighbors, and is that um, when marriage is no longer convenient for me, uh, it, it, you can get rid of it. You deserve better. Find somebody who, what, makes you happy. Right? And one of the biggest lies of all, just follow your heart. <laughs> yeah, because that'll never lead us astray. Um, and in that last week, and one of the, the, the reoccurring things I told you that I was going to kind of be combating is this whole, uh, and you can laugh as much as you want, but I think it's true, is the whole myth of uh, the best friend, that the, the highest status that a marriage relationship can achieve is the status of being a best friend. And I think that specifically, uh, this morning's message um, probably most directly um, corrects that. But here's the truth that I want us to understand this morning, and that we're going to walk through Malachi 2. We've got a lot to cover this morning, so uh, by God's grace, I'll use um, our time wisely. But the truth is this, is that a happily ever after marriage is one that is built on a covenantal promise. It is not a marriage that is built on convenience. And that's really hard when you get married because the reality is, is when you're dating, it is built on convenience. That's the design. There's no covenant. There's no eternal commitment. And we'll talk in a minute about what, we'll define covenant together in a moment. But when you're dating, like it's all about convenience, how you make me feel, right? And and when you're dating, let's be honest, you work a lot harder to make the other person (laughs) keep you around, right? Um, and so we, we, we enter a relationship with somebody based on convenience and attraction and, and perceived needs and, and affection. And then when we get married, it's not that those things are to go away, but it's that, those, that our relationship together is now not based on those things. Our, base, our relationship now is based on covenant. Now, let me, let me say something here again, as we will each week, but um, you have no right to determine the longevity of your marriage. You guys get that? It has not been given to us to determine the length or the longevity of a marriage. And here's what's really hard, and I think where the world really combats uh, the church, where the the two worldviews really fight one another, um, 
is that the world doesn't recognize marriage as being instituted by God, right? But everything that we're talking about in this series here's, here's, is, is true of marriages in the church and, and marriages outside of the church. Just because somebody gets married and they're not saved doesn't mean they didn't, they're not in a covenantal marriage because marriage only has one type, and that is a covenant. Whether or not people believe it doesn't make it true. It is true, and therefore we want people to believe it, and we should believe it, and we should live lives that, that declare that we believe it. But it doesn't change whether you're in the church or not, or whether you're in Christ or not, or whether you're a slave to sins in the world, or if you're a slave to Christ, it doesn't change. This is what marriage is. And so in our text this morning that Nikel read for us out of Malachi, um, let me explain kind of what was going on here. So uh, our text specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. That's going to kind of define uh, our time together this morning. But here's what happens is in, in verses 10 through 12 is there's this, um, obviously this issue where God is addressing in, in, in Judah, who's part of Israel, uh, their unfaithfulness to him, right? And then, and then in verse 13, it goes, and then here's the second thing that you do, right? And isn't this us? You cover my altars with tears, right? It's kind of the woe is me thing, Right? Like, woe is me. And the offense in this is, is not only the fact that these people are, are centered on themselves and their own circumstances, um, but the offense is, the, the, the great offense, or the great sin, if you will, is, is why? Why were they crying? Well, they were crying because God it clearly says um, that God was withholding His blessing from them. Like, do you realize that in God's goodness, there's times where He withholds blessing? Now, I don't want us to confuse acceptance with blessing. There's a, you can't compare that. They're, they're, they're different. God doesn't withhold His acceptance. Once you are His child, you're His child, right? And your behavior doesn't dictate the level to which He accepts you. But there is the reality that God blesses obedience, Right? There, there is this reality that when you have been made alive in Christ, that you should want to start obeying. But these men were not obeying. And the specific thing that they were not obeying or the specific sin that they were committing was unfaithfulness to their wives. And so God says through Malachi, Malachi was a prophet, right? One, he was kind of the, the mouthpiece of God's mouthpiece to God's people. And he says, this is why God's hand is being withheld. Why God's hand of blessing was being withheld from you. It's because your unfaithfulness to your wife, you're unfaithful to your wives, and then you come to God's altar and you moan and you cry and you, you just don't understand and you don't get it. And God tells them, it's really simple. <laughs> it's very simple. Just as the nation or as a people, you're not faithful to God, so you men are not being faithful to your husbands, excuse me, to your wives. Now notice in verse 15, excuse me, verse 14, he says, but you say, why does he not? So they're saying to to Malachi, or to God, really, theoretically, why does God not bless us? And Malachi answers this question, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. 
right? So what he's saying is, is and this is what begins to kind of form um, our understanding of covenant, right? Is God was a witness to this marriage between this man and the wife of his youth and to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, See, the Old Testament, um, Israel understood covenant. If you think with me, um, some of you guys might have heard the terms, the, the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David, that the king would always be, that would always, the, the kingdom would always be through the lineage of King David, right? Or maybe the Abrahamic covenant, that God, would, that God promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation, that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. Or uh, the covenant he made with Noah, not to destroy the earth again by flood. Like, so covenant was, was a really common idea to Israel. It's not so much to us. It's kind of lost in our language. But let me define for you what covenant is. Simply put, a covenant is an agreement between two parties that is witnessed by God. Therefore, its duration is determined by God. You see... When we enter into marriage, when anybody enters into marriage, it is through a covenant because God is the one who has established marriage. God is the one who said this is who a marriage is between one man and one woman. God said that it's to last for the entire life of one man and one woman. And not only has God defined it and instituted it, but God witnesses it. And this is what Malachi tells them. He defines for them right there what a covenant is. Is God witnessed you when you married the wife of your youth. You see, convenience says that the duration is determined by how useful you are to me. You see, when you no longer fulfill the needs that I have, when you no longer make me feel the way that I want to feel, when you no longer do for me or you... Or I, or I come to a point where I realize you're never going to do for me the things that I want you to do for me, then there's no use in us being married anymore. There's no use in us staying together. I'm going to go find someone who fulfills these things in me, and that's convenience. But covenant says that God decides the duration of our agreement. See, when you understand covenant marriage, you understand that God has decreed and has said numerous times in Scripture what God has brought together, let no man separate. And let me tell you something, that oftentimes when we hear that, we think it's like somebody on the outside of the relationship. No, it includes the two people in the relationship. Let no one separate. Now let me give you kind of a long definition here of covenantal marriage, and this is taken from uh, the Family Research Council, okay? Here's how they define covenant marriage. It is entered into by the husband and the wife before God as a witness. Because it is ultimately God who has joined the marriage partners together, the husband and the wife vow to each other abiding loyalty and fidelity till death do us part. Rightly understood, therefore, a marriage entered into before God involves three persons, a husband, a wife, and God. For this reason, it is not self-interest, human advantage, or an unfettered commitment to personal freedom that governs the marriage relationship, but the husband and wife's joint commitment to conduct their marriage based on God's design and sovereign plan. You see, part of entering into marriage 
is submitting uh, the rest of this relationship and your life with this person to God's sovereign plan and His design. And what we don't understand is that a part of marriage, listen, marriage is the most uh, intense uh, discipleship class you will ever have. Right? Marriage will quickly, uh, the, the marriage relationship will quickly allow the idols and the selfishness and the laziness or uh, maybe the, the, um, the legalistic uh, tendencies of your heart to come to the surface very quickly. There's not a lot of separation in a marriage. And there's not supposed to be. This is God's design. This is how God gets glory. You see, two people sticking it together, even though they, they might not be completely compatible or they might not see one another convenient, but in faith, they stay together knowing that it's God's will and knowing that they are there not for their own self-interest, but for the good of the other person is how God's glory is displayed to a world who doesn't believe. Since God has instituted marriage and He has witnessed the marriage, covenant marriage then is or recognizing that you're in a covenant marriage is recognizing that you will follow God's duration for the marriage. See, convenience again says that I no longer get the high happiness or satisfaction from you that I once did or that I thought I would. As we talked a lot last week about entering marriage with an illusion. That's what convenience says. I'm no longer getting my felt needs from you. Or, I really thought this was going to be a lot different. Right? This isn't everything that I was promised through music and movies and TV shows and magazines and books. Like, it's different. Or maybe for some of you, it's not like what my parents had. And so you struggle to see that it is God's will for you to stay married. But covenant says, I am here till death do us part for God's glory and your good. You see, covenant marriage, um, in, in the DNA of, of understanding covenant marriage, is this idea that um, obviously it's, it's God's glory, like we talked about last week, but it's also a commitment, a deep, unwavering, um, faithful commitment to the person you're marrying that you are going to be for their good. Right? Like it's this commitment to whether you realize it or not, what you're making is a commitment to say, you know what, when no one else is for you, I am for you. Right? Like it is much deeper than being a best friend. You will never see husband and wife described in scripture as best friends. You will see best friends talked about in scripture, never in the context of husband and wife. You see, a best friend is under no God ordained agreement to stay with you. Best friend can get tired of you and leave. And it might not be sin. Not so with a spouse, a wife, or a husband. A best friend is not what God saw Adam needed in the garden. A spouse is. You see, here is a big problem. As I, as I said last week, one of the, the, the problems with marriages in the church um, is that most of our marriages... Um, and when I say church, I'm, talking, I'm not just talking our local church here, um, but we would be fools to think if we don't follow the trends of the global church as well, right? Um, but one of the problems is that our marriages look just as unhappy and dysfunctional as the world's. Divorce rates show this, right? 
Uh, and we, we realize, I think where we get tripped up is that we think that our problems are going to be different than their problems. But the truth is, is that we're sinful men and our wives are sinful wives and, and the, the problems are going to be the same. Where things should look different is in our unwavering commitment to God's design for marriage and in our fighting for the best for our spouse, even at the expense of ourselves. That's where the difference comes. You see, some people need to stop viewing their spouse as a problem, a hindrance, or a regretful commitment. You've done, said, I did, and so now it's time to do. It's, right? See, the way that we view our commitment and our spouse and what we believe about our commitment and what we believe about God and what we believe about our spouse Spouse, excuse me, directly reflects, is directly reflected in our enjoyment of our spouse and of God. Some of you can never enjoy your spouse because you're constantly regretting being with them. Or you see them as a hindrance or a problem to what you want and what you want to get done. As Christians, we are called to put away our petty differences. We are called to be for one another. Husbands should fight for the affections and the care and the dreams of their wives. And wives should fight for the respect and well-being of their husbands. We must put away unrealistic expectations and seek the good of our spouse. I think that right there kind of really boils down all of our marriage problems is our expectations, right? Wanting to have those met, wanting to have those fulfilled um, versus understanding that this is a commitment uh, to God that I will be for this person like nobody else. So much so that even in Peter, uh, men... Uh, Peter uh, writes the church and he says that uh, because basically because you're not living in an understanding way with them, uh, God doesn't hear your prayers. Like that's how serious this dying to yourself and, and living for the glory of God and the good of others is in the context of marriage. And here in the Old Testament, the Israelites, like, listen, they weren't struggling with anything that we weren't. Like, I think sometimes we are, uh, we, we believe this lie that says, well, um, it wasn't the same as it was back then. Like, it was a lot easier. Like, marriage was rampant in the Old Testament. Or, excuse me, divorce was rampant in Old Testament time. It's nothing new. Ecclesiastes, song, uh, excuse me, uh, King Solomon in Ecclesiastes tells us that nothing is new under the sun. You know what that's referring to? There's new, no new ways to sin. People have been sinning the same way since the fall. And so God says that, or Malachi tells him that God is withholding his blessing from your life because you're not living in, a faithful, in faithfulness to your wife. And he even goes, now look at, listen how he describes divorce in verse 16. He says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord of God, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. You think God's pretty adamant and passionate uh, about the way we understand divorce and covenant marriage? Like, that's not, easy, that's not light language that he's using there. 
The ESV study Bible comments on that verse and says this, says that God says divorce is the defiling of one's character with violent wrongdoing. Divorce, what they're saying, is reveals your character and it, it, it violently um, defiles your character. That's how wrong it is. You see, as the church, we should not, we are not, Katie and I had this conversation yesterday as we were driving home from her cousin's wedding, but we are not as the church to lift marriage up to a pedestal that it sets equal with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Like, that's what tends to happen in churches. Like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to idolize marriage. We don't want to tell people that marriage, like, you're not uh, complete or successful, right, or you're not living within God's will if you're not married. We don't want to, we don't want to take that step. But we do need to elevate the commitment of marriage above where the world has it. Like, listen, when you got saved, when you said, God, I am a sinner and I need you to save me, a part of that was this this commitment to going against what the world says. It was a commitment to have your minds renewed by God and His ways. And that's hard. We talked about in our men's group this last week, like that's the hard work. To renew your mind. It takes, it's active. Renew your minds. Now, here's what happens whenever people talk about marriage, the commitment of marriage and um, divorce is, is, is people are very quickly to say, well, wait a minute, Jesus said, right? So I want to, in this message this morning, I want to cover the two reasons in Scripture that are given um, for a what is considered... Um, Morally approved divorce. Uh, in commenting on, on marriage and divorce, the ESV study Bible also says this, the divorce based on loss of affection is nowhere morally approved. Do you get that? Let's stop there for a second. Nowhere is it morally okay for you to divorce because you don't feel like you love that person or because, what do we say? Oh, I'm just not in love with them anymore. That's too bad in faith, start to love them the way that God has called you to love them, and God's heart, God will move your heart to a place of deep affection for that person because that is God's will. Now, before we cover these two things, let me say these. Don't, don't miss these two points. One, divorce is never God's will. Okay? Even if it is morally um, approved, it does not mean that it is God's will. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The second thing is that whether it is via difficult times in a a marriage, whether it is via separation, or whether it is through divorce, that reconciliation should always be the goal. You are never released, I don't believe, from working towards reconciliation with a person that you said I do to. Right? Okay? Now, the two morally approved reasons, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard both of these, but let's take some time and look at them. Uh, And let me make this one last um, comment before we talk about them is this, is that even if you're in a situation um, that would classify as one of these two morally approved reasons, your first move should not be to the courthouse, 
but to the church, knowing that it is never God's will or his best for divorce. You see, it is a sinful heart that says, oh yes, finally I have a reason. They've finally given me a reason. And then you run to a lawyer in the courthouse to get done what you've had done in your heart a long time ago. Right? That's not a heart of reconciliation. That's not a heart of forgiveness. So your first move should be to the church, not the courthouse. So the first morally approved reason that we see in Scripture is found in Matthew chapter 5. Actually, it's in Matthew a few times, but we'll just uh, take a brief look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Divorce, uh, under divorce, says, it, it was also said, so this is, of course, Jesus talking, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, what Jesus is saying there is when he says it was also said, he's talking about it is, it is commonly accepted. It's a common practice among mankind that if you want a divorce, then just give her a certificate of divorce. Now, look how Jesus contrasts that in verse 32. He says, but I say to you. So in those words that I say to you, he is correcting what has been known as common among the people. Right? He is not agreeing with it. He is not supporting it. He's correcting it. And he says this, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the first one that we see is adultery. Because something happens special between a man and a woman, um, intimacy, when they come together, and it is the two forming of one, when that is broken, it it is a deep, deep wound that God recognizes because of sin. Because in another portion of Matthew, God says, uh, the, is in Matthew uh, 19, I believe, um, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try and trap him, uh, one of those instances. And they say, uh, well, Moses gave us certificates of divorce. And Jesus really snaps back at him and goes, you know what? It's because of the hardness of your hearts that Jesus gave, that Moses said, you could divorce your wife for this. He didn't say, well, yeah, because it's God's will or it's God's best for you, but because the hardness of heart. And so, whereas I cannot tell you or, or uh, pretend to understand the depth of this, there is in God's mercy and compassion for his people the allowance to divorce if your spouse has been sexually unfaithful to you. And it is not considered a sin. Okay? Okay? Now, when it talks about marital unfaithfulness, it is not talking about a time. It is talking about a pattern of unrepentant sin. And this is hard for us at times, right? Ladies, if you have a husband who is in an ongoing struggle for, uh, in an ongoing struggle with pornography, does it mean that he's been sexually unfaithful to you? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But if he is repentant and there is growth, then I don't know that the Bible says that you have the right to run down to the courthouse and divorce him. Because remember, what is marriage a picture of? It's a picture of Christ and his church. And although the wounds, uh, sexual unfaithfulness, the wounds run deep, they do not run as deep as the wounds that we have committed against God. And if in our unfaithfulness to God, we can, He can forgive us and He made a way for us to be reconciled and restored, then as His people, we should be a model of that forgiveness 
and grace. Now, the second reason is considered uh, termed as abandonment, and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, specifically verses 12 through 15. Let me read that for you. To the rest, I say, not I, uh, I, not the Lord. Now, what he's saying when he says that is he's not saying like, because sometimes that can get confusing. What he's saying is Jesus did not quote these exact words. So Paul's writing here where Paul says, to the rest, I say, it is still fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is why it's included in Scripture. Paul's just making this, the distinction that Jesus did not say these words. Like He's saying, I'm not quoting. There's no quote marks here. Okay, That's what that means when you see that when Paul, because he writes it a couple times in his letters. But he says, To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. And you see how the emphasis there, as, as Paul ends that writing, is, is on the ultimate good for their spouse, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the restoration to a perfect and holy God. It's the, it's, it's the heart that wants to reserve that spouse from eternal judgment and damnation outside of God's presence because of his sin or her sin. So those are the two morally approved reasons, adultery and abandonment. But I would say to you again, and, and I, I spent, in fact, uh, uh, myself, Andrew, and Rico, we spent a little bit of time on this together recently. And in anything that I have found from any church that, um, and I will say we limited our, our search uh, to trusted sources, uh, but uh, uh, the emphasis is, in all of this is placed on go to the church, go to the church, go to the church. You see, God has designed the church to be a help in times of discouragement and faithlessness. By yourself, doing the will of God in a marriage that is difficult and is frustrating and is disappointing, right? You can't, fat, you can't think of how to make it through, right? And that's understandable. But God has given the church to encourage to be there for you in times where your spouse isn't. But regardless of the situation is when you are married, whether you are saved or not, whether your spouse was saved or not, as you entered into a covenant, an agreement with your spouse that was witnessed by God. Therefore, God defines the duration. Now, I want to make, take a couple of quick moments and I want to talk about what about, because this is another thing that always comes up and I want to try and equip us the best that we can best that I can. What about cases of abuse? Is abuse directly abandonment? Is abuse directly means for divorce? And I will tell you, I don't know. Actually, let me take that back. I will tell you that I think it's case by case. Here's what I will tell you, the steps that need to happen if you are, uh, um, if you are in an abusive relationship or if you are working and walking through somebody who is in an abusive relationship. The first thing is to seek immediate safety. Separate. Seek immediate safety. 
When we talk about abuse, let me define it for us. It's the repeated cruel or violent treatment of a person or an animal. So this is not necessarily just physical abuse. This is emotional abuse. could be sexual abuse. Okay, that does happen in marriages. Okay? Now, if there was physical abuse, then you need to immediately contact the police. God has instituted government and law enforcement as a means of His common grace to reside over us. As the church, we don't run from that. Sexual abuse, I should say as well. If there's been sexual abuse, police should be called also. Like the church, being a part of the church and being saved doesn't say, okay, well, there's this set of laws that the police govern for the world, but then, no, that's not what it is. God has placed us all under His common grace of the authority of the government. And if a, if a crime has been committed, then the police need to be contacted. The second thing I would say that needs to happen is you need to notify the church. You need to come to the, the elders of the church and you need to um, notify them of the situation. Right? It's going to be hard, it's going to be embarrassing, it's going to be painful, but it's necessary, and we will walk through it with you with as much grace and compassion as we can. The third thing is that we would do then is, that needs to happen is work towards reconciliation, which means that both parties would be engaged to the extent possible. Now, in this part of working towards reconciliation, there might be, we might come up with a plan of separation. A plan of like, you know what, it is not safe for you to be there right now. We're going to come up with a plan of separation. And what that is, it's, a set of, it's a, actually a plan, okay? So it's not like, well, you're just going to be separated forever and live that way. But there's an actual plan of like, okay, we're going to take this many months, and over this many months, here's some of the things that we need to see that will allow us to say, this is safe for you to enter back into. Right? And, and not only that, but if it's, if, it's, if it's on the side of the abuser, it gives the abuser time to repent, right? And to show that he is allowing God's grace to change and transform his, heart, his or her heart before we put somebody back into an abusive situation. The church does not espouse abuse, abuse. The church does not espouse abusive relationships. The church does just not say, oh, well, you need to be a martyr and you need to withstand it for God's glory and be quiet like Peter says. That's not, what we're, that's, that, that's not the message of, of Scripture. Seek immediate safety, notify the church, and then we'll work towards a plan of reconciliation by engaging both parties as much as possible. And it might also, like I said, include a plan of separation. So as we wrap up this morning, this is a little bit different than normal this morning, but a happily ever after marriage is one that is founded on the certainty of covenant. You see, you will not ever be happy or satisfied or fulfilled or even uh, experience the joys of relationship because God did design marriage to bring joy and laughter and intimacy But if you're constantly wondering about or trying to get out of or comparing to other people, your marriage cannot produce anything that is good for you. It can't. The grass, the lie is that the grass is always greener with somebody else. Right? The sex would be so much better with somebody else. Life would be so much fuller with somebody else. If my spouse would only do this, then I would be happy. 
If my spouse would only act this way or take up this hobby with me or just whatever it is, that's a lie. It's fundamentally a lie about what you're, try, what, what, you're, what you're being told about the purpose of marriage, right? And the role of your spouse. So if you'll stand with me, I'll pray. As we move into the last two songs for the morning, let me end with this. Everyone here has sinned against God when it comes to marriage. Everyone. There's no one that is exempt. Whether it be through divorce, whether it be through lust, whether it be through selfishness, whether it be through pretending. But the beauty of marriage is that it is a picture of Christ and His church. And the good news is that Jesus came and lived in our place. You see, Jesus, although He was never married to a woman, is married to the church. Jesus has never left the church. Jesus has never cheated on the church. Jesus never dreamed about leaving the church. Jesus' daydreams don't fantasize about being with somebody who is more like Him. In fact, God's love is most powerfully displayed in the fact that Jesus' church is unfaithful to Him. But every time, He goes and gets her. Every time, He pursues her. Every time, He washes away the sin of filth and lust and unfaithfulness. So this morning, if you are here um, and you have seen that whether in your current relationship or in a relationship in the past that you have sinned against God's covenant designed for marriage, know that the good news is that God offers restoration and forgiveness of that. You don't walk around with a black X on your back because of your sins. Don't revel in the past. Confess, repent, right? But revel in the forgiveness and the beauty of Jesus as the perfect bride to his church. God, I pray this morning that you would help uh, this truth, um, God, to be quickened in our hearts. God, that we would not run to the same answers as the world for... um, the problems of our marriage, but God, that we would be holy, but that we would be set apart. God, that we would see the purpose of marriage and the commitment to marriage, God, differently than the world sees it. I pray even, God, for those of us that have uh, tendencies, God, to be legalistic and lay down the law and want to follow the law, God, that we would see that it is not our perfect commitment to our spouse that sanctifies and justifies us. But it is alone the blood of Jesus Christ that justifies us and sanctifies us. For those of us in here, God, that might um, idolize and worship marriage, I pray, God, that you would give them the strength to repent. God, that they would turn from seeing marriage as something worth worshiping. They would let go of that and that they would embrace Jesus. God, that you would in your gentleness and in your kindness cause them to see that they're not as great in their marriage as they think they are. And God, for those who have seen marriage as convenience and struggle in the way that they see and view and think about their spouse because their spouse isn't fulfilling the needs and the desires, uh, Lord, that they want them to fulfill, I pray, God, 
that you would give them the strength to repent from that as well. Pray, God, that we would let go of looking for uh, ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction from our spouses. And God, that we would find that fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would help the marriages in this church. God, there's not a day that goes by that marriages are not under attack by the evil one. In fact, as we saw in Malachi chapter 2, that the issue of marriage and divorce is actually a spiritual issue. For those, God, that are just struggling in their marriage, God, I pray, God, that you would give them strength. Give them hope. God, not in their spouse, but in you. I pray, God, that you would help us to know that our battles are not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against our spouse and the things they don't do or the things they do. But, God, our battle is against the enemy, the evil one. Help us, God, to fight appropriately. Help us to fight the evil one. Help us, God, commit our minds to being renewed by your gospel and your grace. Help our marriages, God, to be renewed by your gospel, God, and your grace and your mercy. Help our men, God, to die to themselves. Die to the lusts of their flesh. And love their wives well. Pray, God, that you would help our wives to die to themselves as well. That you would help them to see, God, the immensely important role of helper that they have and how nobody has the voice in their husband's life like they do, God, that they would steward that voice well, God. That they would nurture his leadership and his decision-making and not control it or put it down. Most of all, God, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the perfect husband, the perfect bridegroom. As his church, God, let us rest in the fact that no man can separate us from him. 